0: We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Our reading this evening is going to start in verse 12. Uh, so I want to remind you what's, what's happening in these letters to the Corinthians. Uh, Corinth is a, uh, a city in mainland Greece, which if you know your geography at all, or maybe you flip to the back of your Bible and find the maps there, the southern half of Greece is connected to the northern half by a tiny, tiny little strip of land. And right there is where... Uh, Corinth, the city of Corinth, is. It was an important city, uh, and Paul had uh, had gone into that city, had planted a church, uh, later wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, and then we believe, based upon the evidence we have in the letters to First and Second Corinthians, uh, the First and Second letters, uh, that he wrote a second letter, which we've lost, one that he refers to himself as a severe letter. Uh, he wrote that letter instead of visiting them. He told them he was going to visit, he hoped to visit, uh, and, uh, and instead of visiting, he wrote a letter to them, this severe letter. He's going to make reference to that in next week's text, in particular, as he explains why he didn't come to them. They, uh, there are some in the church at Corinth who are accusing Paul of having lied about visiting, that he said he was going to come but he really never intended to come. They're attacking Paul, attacking his ministry. Uh, They're suggesting that the the things that he writes to them, that he doesn't mean those things. He's just trying to, to manipulate them. And so in this evening's text, Paul is going to begin to answer that charge. You'll remember in last week's text, Paul uh, introduces this truth that God is the source of all comfort. And as we receive that comfort from God, we are to then convey that comfort to one another, particularly in, in the expression of the gospel, not just the gospel to those who are lost, but the gospel to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. We receive our greatest, truest, most enduring and eternal comfort from the truth of the gospel. And so we're encouraged, encouraged as we proclaim that gospel and the lost believe and are found. Encouraged as, uh, as that gospel is delivered to us as we find ourselves as Christians in discouragement. And so Paul is, is reminding them of this truth that there is comfort in affliction and the gospel and God in, in, ultimately is the source of that comfort. And then he gets to the end of last week's text and he says, uh, and we, we want your prayers. You also, verse 11, must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. That's Paul's ministry he's asking for prayer for. And this evening, as we begin to read in verse 12, it's as though Paul says, and speaking of my ministry, there have been accusations, and I'd like to answer them. That's why he's going to use the language of boast and conscience, and he, he enters into what sounds like and is a bit of a defensive posture here in these verses. Let me pray, and we'll read together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Paul, who is faithful to deliver it. We thank you for uh, your work in Paul's ministry, uh, that ministry to the Gentiles, of which we ourselves are an enduring legacy. Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel that is ours, for the comfort that comes to us, in which we then are able to give to one another, because Jesus Christ lives and is coming again. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read or read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this evening, uh, we're, we're going to, to focus primarily on the opening verses of this passage. A lot of the, the passage that we are covering tonight uh, is, uh, is Paul essentially reviewing the history, right? I said I was going to come to you, I wanted to come to you and then go to Macedonia, and then I wanted to come back to you from Macedonia. Uh, Was I not being honest when I told you that that was what I wanted to do? And so uh, two things in particular I want to focus on. Do we not live by earthly wisdom? Uh, We do not live by earthly wisdom and we live with integrity. We do not live by earthly wisdom. Look at what Paul says in beginning in 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. We do not live by earthly wisdom. In a world in which common grace allows those who don't know God or honor God to mix truth and goodness with their personal ideas about right and wrong, how do we wrestle well with what is right. How do we distinguish between worldly wisdom and that wisdom that is ours by the grace of God? A few things. First, God has given us a conscience. We ought to pay attention to it. God has given us a conscience. We ought to pay attention to it. Paul appeals to the testimony of his conscience in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. Now, you might say, it's going to be very easy for anybody to make such a claim. Now, well, my conscience says I'm good and so you can't, you can't criticize me. Paul, if you'll look over at verse 23, which will be in next week's text, he opens, but I call God to witness against me. And if you look at, uh, at verse 14, He talks about the day of our Lord Jesus. You will boast of us as we will boast of you. Paul is pointing to the the eschatological, the end of all things, when Christ sits in judgment. And what Paul opens with is an appeal to his conscience. And he reminds them that a day is coming when he'll have to answer for that appeal. He will either be justified by God on the day of judgment or... He will be condemned. He appeals to the conscience. All people have a conscience because the law of God is written on every human heart. Every one of us in Christ and apart from Christ is made in the image of God. All of us have a conscience. Paul appeals to this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14-16. through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day that when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul says that even the unbeliever has a conscience and that conscience is written by God. It's a dangerous thing to ignore your conscience. The conscience can, by ignoring it, be weakened. It's given by God for our good. Just as physical pain is a warning, right? Physical pain is intended by God's design to to provide us with a signal that what we're doing is harmful, we should stop. We're inclined to stop when pain is involved. The conscience serves a similar function for us morally and ethically when we are engaged, tempted to do something, or engaged in something that God has said is not right, the conscience appeals to us. It's wounded. It cries out, and we ignore it at our peril. It's a dangerous thing to ignore that conscience. The conscience can be wrong, and it can be weak, but it should not be ignored outright when the conscience continually is appealing to you, continually pressing into you, saying this is not right, you should listen to it. Paul makes this argument in these letters to the Corinthians at one point. He says, listen, some of you understand that food offered to idols is not offered to anything that's real. The, the, the various gods to whom the, the food is offered, they don't even exist. Uh, and you eat it with a clear conscience and you're fine. But, but some among you, have a, a, a weak conscience, Paul calls it. He says, your conscience is burdened by this. And then he appeals to the ones who know better. And he says, don't attack their conscience. It's not safe, Paul says, to go against your conscience. God has given us a conscience and we should pay attention to it. God has also given us his word to help us discern between worldly wisdom and the wisdom of of God we ought to learn his word and obey it where our wisdom and the wisdom of those around us contradicts the wisdom of God revealed in his word it is worldly wisdom again some of this you you might find yourself saying this is pretty obvious this is pretty easy but the the problem the difficulty as you know in the world is that unbelievers have access to this common grace as well they have a conscience and they, they mix their understanding of right and wrong, both truth that's been written on their hearts by God and falsehood that's a result of the fall. And we're, we're not immune to this as Christians. God's given us that conscience. He's also given us His Word. Where the, the insistence upon something being right is contrary to what God's Word says or something being wrong is contrary, we rely upon God's Word. Worldly wisdom often sounds good. It often sounds good. It it sounds good because it appeals to the self. It often seems good because it typically works in our favor in the short term. It comforts us in our selfishness. Worldly wisdom does not often take the long term into effect. The idea that you might steal something and then have possession of a thing that you want. And in having possession, you feel good and you have the ability to take advantage of the possession of this thing that you wanted and that you took by force. That's the short-term appearance of a good for you. But there's a long-term, and by long, we mean eternal. There is an eternal consequence to this thing. God's Word tells us what is good now, what has always been good, and what will be good for eternity. When we believe God's Word, when we have learned His Word, and we trust that Word, and we seek to pursue holiness according to that standard given to us in God's Word, we take into account the eternal perspective, the eternal outcomes God's wisdom is eternal. Worldly wisdom is short term, it's temporal. Finally, under this first point, God has given us his spirit. How is it that we we wrestle with uh, sometimes things that, that can be difficult to discern in terms of right and wrong, in terms of living according to the world and living according to God's grace? God has given us His Spirit to honor Him. Like the conscience, the Spirit is at work in us, teaching us to grieve and hate sin. And like the conscience, it's a dangerous and foolish thing to ignore the Spirit's prompting as it goes about this work. Unlike the conscience, the Spirit is not given to all people, but only to those that are being saved by God. So we have this great blessing, this precious blessing, this most intimate blessing, Personal relationship, access to God that is ours because the Spirit of God lives in us. One great advantage of that Spirit is that He whispers to us in temptation and sin this is not right. This is not who you are anymore. We honor the Spirit when we agree with Him and repent of our sin and flee from temptation. So we've got the Spirit working through the Word of God and that conscience that all of us have in common in the world as those who are made in the image of God. When Paul makes the distinction here, and he says that they acted among them, not according to earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Paul is appealing not only to how they acted in this specific historical instance, but he's setting out to them a model of how we ought to behave in the world. It's interesting that he says that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. We are to live this way, not only with one another in the church, but in all of our relationships in the world. We honor the Spirit when we agree with Him and repent of our sin and flee from temptation. Second this evening, how then are we to live? How is it characterized in the text? We are to live with integrity. Now that word can be construed narrowly. Integrity, telling the truth. But it can also be construed broadly. That is integrity. There's a wholeness to it. Uh, Engineers will talk about integrity with respect to structures, right? That everything that is needed is there in the right place, in the right manner, in the right quantity, constructed properly so that there is integrity in the structure. And that's the kind of integrity that we see morally and ethically that Paul is talking about tonight. What does the simple, sincere, godly life look like? Paul's addressing uh, speech here, and particularly in terms of doing what we say we will do. Remember, that's what he's been accused of. You said you were coming and you didn't. You lied. You're not trustworthy. You don't actually love us. You don't actually care for us. Paul says, no, that's not what happened. Uh, When I told you that I was going to come to you, I absolutely meant it. And in next week's text, he's going to explain why he didn't come. Scripture is full of instruction to keep our word and to speak with integrity. The ninth commandment requires us not to bear false witness. And the law of Moses repeatedly issues penalties to those who bear false witness or fail to keep their word. Have you ever experienced the frustration of somebody simply not doing what they said they were going to do? Uh, you you have car trouble and you drop it off with the mechanic. He says, "We'll get to it tomorrow." You don't hear from the mechanic the next day, you call him the day after that, hey, were you able to get to it? No, we didn't get to it, but we'll get to it today. It's the first thing on our list. You don't hear anything that day and you call the mechanic the next day and you say, so what did you find? Well, we didn't actually get to it, but I promise you we're doing the best we can. We'll get to it today. I'll send you an email. It will outline everything that you need to know about what's wrong with your car and the day ends and nothing. He he keeps making these implicit promises. He keeps holding out this, this, I'm going to do this, and then he doesn't do it. This should not be the way Christians live. Not with one another, and not in the world. We should be people of our word. Not just in, in things that are seemingly trivial, like if you're an auto mechanic telling the truth about the work you're going to get done and when you're going to get it done. But in every aspect of our lives, in everything that we say we're going to do, we ought to keep our word. We ought to tell the truth. We ought to live with integrity. Notice that Paul is even addressing smooth talk in which it sounds like you're saying you will do something, but when you're called to account for not doing it, you reveal the little loophole that you hid in the words that you use. That's the, the finger crossing that many of us did as children, right? As adults, we just get much more sophisticated. Uh, none of us would dare uh, try to back out of a contract by saying my fingers were crossed when I signed it, right? Uh, but, but man, we, when we make promises, there is a temptation, isn't there? Uh, to, to couch the promise in such a way that we have an escape if we need it. And then when we're called to account for it, we throw our hands up and say, ah, that's not exactly what I said. I, what I said was, look at what Paul says here. He says, We're not writing to you with anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. There's a complaint from the church at Corinth that not that Paul's writing was too hard to understand, but that Paul didn't mean the things that he wrote. You see, and and we know some of these things because as we continue in the first seven chapters of Corinthians, Paul's going to unpack the specifics. One of the things they're mad at Paul about is he wouldn't accept any money from them. You go, how could they be mad that Paul wouldn't accept any pay, that he did everything for them for free? And their accusation is that he did it to be manipulative. He refused to accept any money in order to manipulate and control the congregation at Corinth. Paul is saying, look, nothing I'm saying to you, in person or in writing, has a hidden agenda. None of it has a hidden motive. Everything I write to you is plain. We're not writing to you anything other than what you read. I want to make sure you're picking up what Paul is saying here. What you're reading is what we mean. Please don't read between the lines. Please don't try and find a hidden motive. What we're writing and you're reading is it. Plain language. This is how we ought to live in the world with integrity, not as children crossing their fingers when we say something, but as those who are in Christ who know a Christ who has kept his word who has not exercised an escape clause in the promises that he made. And as those who have received those promises and know that we have a Christ who keeps his promises, we're to live in the world as those who keep their promises. You see, Paul is not being defensive here merely because his feelings are hurt and there's an injustice. That's not Paul's primary concern. Paul's primary concern And the reason that he is so determined to defend his ministry is because his ministry was given to him by God and how he ministers reflects upon Christ. If Paul indeed is in the world as a minister of Christ and he's vacillating, he's being dishonest, he's not keeping his word. he's using words that are meant to confuse in order to get away with an ulterior motive. That reflects on Christ. And so Paul can't quietly just take that beating. He's got to address the accusations. This is why Paul brings Christ into it. In verse 18, you know, he, he says in the previous verses, was, was I not being honest with you when I said I was coming? No, that's not what was happening. As Surely as God is faithful. Do you see him appealing to the fact that God keeps his promises? As surely as God keeps his promises, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Paul's, the character of Paul's ministry is intended by Paul. Paul understands of himself that the character of his ministry is to reflect the character of Christ in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. That is why, Paul says, it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul is saying, listen, my ministry is the ministry God has given to me. I can appeal to a clean conscience. I have not done the things you have accused me of. And let me remind you, in making that appeal, I will stand before God one day and answer for it if I'm lying. My ministry has been carried out with a clear conscience before you, not according to the world, but according to the grace of God. Paul uses very intentional words here. If you go back to the beginning of our text, he says, we behaved in the world with simplicity, and godly sincerity. He was frank with them, simplicity. Uh, with sincerity, there was a purity of motive in the words that Paul spoke. In verse 13, he reiterates this. He says, For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. There's no hidden motive. In other words, don't look for a hidden meaning. We're speaking plainly. Take us at our word. The yes that he talks about, that was his. Uh, his speech and the speech of Christ. Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But in Jesus, it is always yes, for the promises of God find their yes in him. We have Christ as our example and as our means of living in integrity. As surely as God is faithful, he says in 18.4 in verse 19. And then he appeals to who Christ is. Paul is is not only in last week's text where he's talking about comfort and affliction. And what's underlying that entire discussion in last week's text is the proclamation of the gospel. That which brings affliction, but also which brings comfort. and, And that which is the comfort that we give to one another because we've received it from God. And underlying all of this week's text is a concern for the ministry that has been given to Paul by Christ. And a concern to defend that ministry. Listen, as we go out into the world, we are ministers. You know, we are a kingdom of priests. The Old Testament calls us that, the New Testament reiterates it. We are a kingdom of priests sent out into the world to minister. How ought we to be at work in the world? And the answer is with integrity, not according to worldly wisdom, not according to the flesh but according to the grace of God. And so that ought to be an encouragement to us this evening. God does not send us out into the world without equipping us for that that he sends us to. He doesn't send us out into the world without telling us how it is that we ought to be going out into the world and fulfilling the mission. The world is going to quite often fill our Our minds fill our ears, fill our eyes and our hearts with ideas about how we ought to do things, how we ought to live in the world. And even when we're we're living in the world and in a given moment we're not engaged in the ministry that we've been sent on, the way we live reflects on the One who sent us into the world with that mission. It can undermine our ministry of the gospel to our neighbors. If our neighbors know us, to be people who don't keep our word, if they know us to be people who are hard to live with because we're unkind, because we're untrustworthy, then the message that we declare from God receives no hearing. Do you see what's at stake? This is why Paul is saying, this is who I am, this is what I've been called to, this is how I've conducted myself, and honestly, how I always conduct myself, Paul says, in the world, but I am especially careful to conduct myself this way with you, he says. And so it's uh, thankfully a a mission, a ministry that we go into out in the world because of who Christ is and what Christ has done Uh, that, that God is the one in Christ by His Spirit at work in us as we go out into the world. But we are called to do it with integrity. We are called to be faithful ministers to reflect the character of the one who sent us. Let's pray.